This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast from May 20th, 2019. The American economy has been called the great car economy. The automobile could hardly be more central to the American way of life, not to mention its capitalist system. Let's talk to someone who thinks it shouldn't be. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Here's what we've got coming up for you in this podcast. Everybody would be better off if everybody did that, but each individual is better off if they don't. No, but that's not true. Just look at the drivers. Like, tell me that that person feels they're better off when they're just like sitting in traffic, just looking pissed off. Um, honking their horn, breathing exhaust fumes, not getting where they're going. This is daily. That's coming up shortly. But first, I'm back. Sorry for the unplanned hiatus. I was a bit unwell for a while, but I'm back and there are lots of interesting shows coming up. Thanks to all of you for your patience. And of course, thanks to all my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who contributes. Patreon, if you don't know, is basically a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. That helps me to devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. If you think you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and also at the end of the show. There have been a couple of stories about facial recognition in the news recently. This audio is from a BBC report where British police set up a van with cameras filming passers-by and searching for records on them based on facial recognition. This man didn't want to be caught by the police cameras, so he covered his face. Police stopped him, they photographed him anyway, an argument followed. What's your suspicion? One man decided that he didn't like that and pulled his sweater up over his mouth and nose to frustrate the camera system. The chap told me down the road, he said he got facial recognition. So I walked past like that. It's a cold day as well. Because I've done that, the police officers asked me to come to him, so I've got me back up. I said to him... The police stopped him, forced him to be photographed and fined him £90, about $115, for what they called disorderly conduct. There you go, look at that. Thanks, Lex, £90. There was no suggestion that he was guilty of any crime, at least of any other crime, if you call not wanting to be filmed a crime. That was a trial. The police brought a BBC camera crew along with them to film the demonstration, and it was notable that three other people were arrested when the cameras and the associated computer system recognised them as people who had outstanding warrants against them. Compare that to the story of another British man, this time in the French port city of Calais, He'll go on trial shortly for an incident that started when police noticed that he was filming them. He says that the police attacked a woman he was with without provocation. 
the two of them were recording police behaviour. There's an ongoing dispute at migrant camps around Calais, where volunteers distributing food to migrants say that they're suffering intense harassment from the French police. Amnesty International have said that the charges are an abusive process and should be dropped. The man faces large fines and up to five years in prison if he's convicted. This has echoes of the Glick versus Conniff case in the United States, where the Supreme Court ruled that citizens have the right to film public officials, including police, who are working in public. There's a clear case here to say that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. People have a right to film in public space. It has a good effect, too. People, at least the police, who know that their actions are being recorded, are more likely to behave in a decent way. But facial recognition is a whole new technology. It's notable that San Francisco has banned its use in public. This is not just filming people. It's effectively looking up each person in a database just because they went out in public. Now, the UK operation that led to one man being stopped and fined for pulling up his sweater, that's essentially the equivalent of setting up a checkpoint and saying that nobody is allowed to pass until they've given their ID and been checked. Is that justified? It certainly seems like a scary new use of technology, but that alone is not a valid argument against it. You can't rationally say that while the rest of society moves on, law enforcement must only use technology invented before an arbitrary date. But new technology has given governments ways of violating rights that were never before contemplated. If the police can use facial recognition to look up all passers-by in a database of, say, outstanding warrants, then the police could use facial recognition to record all passers-by in a database. That's the electronic equivalent of putting a checkpoint on every street corner and not letting anyone pass unless they produce an ID and have their movements recorded. If you don't immediately see why that's incompatible with democracy, then two things. One, you don't know the difference between democracy and a police state. And two, you're going to learn about that difference pretty soon. But remember, in that UK trial, the police arrested three wanted men. That's the electronic equivalent of a cop spotting a fugitive in the street and collaring them. Should we really complain about that? This has the potential to take a lot of criminals off the street and be a much more efficient use of resources. My opinion is this. If something is already permissible, there's no good argument for saying that the same thing done electronically rather than by a human is a violation. So spotting a crook in the street, either by person or by machine, fine. But when something is clearly impermissible when done by humans, there's no justification for saying that because we can do the same thing by machine and be more subtle about it, it becomes acceptable. It doesn't. So the devil is in the detail here. We could say, if the system is programmed only to flag fugitives for the police to arrest, then that's okay. But if it's programmed to record everyone who passes, 
for the authorities to use later as they see fit, that's not okay. But that would require an independent audit of the entire system being used. Let's see how fast the police forces are willing to agree to that. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have Aaron Napisak. He is a co-host of the podcast, The War on Cars. He's also a founder of the streetsblog.org. Uh, but really, I'm interested in The War on Cars, Aaron. And uh, I know this rhetorical trick. Usually it's used with The War on Women or The War on Christmas. And it's to uh, from people who want to claim that they're being victimized. Are you defending victimized car drivers? <laughs> no, that's 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 backwards. It's more like we're we're defending uh, um, victimized cities and the people who live in them um, and the way in which they are victimized by car oriented transportation systems. And it's kind of a cheeky, you know, it's a little bit of a tongue in cheek name. I, I, I'd been pretty involved in bike advocacy and transit advocacy in New York City for many years. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that always came up and still comes up uh, whenever you sort of try to uh, reallocate street space away from cars and to bikes and buses. And, you know, you take a parking spot away from a car and replace it with a bike rack Mm -hmm. on the street. And somebody inevitably will show up to the meeting and say, you know, you guys are waging a war on cars. And it, it came up so often that we decided, you know, what the heck, let's just be the war on cars. They're accusing us of it anyways. And why why would anybody be at war with cars? Well, um, right. So not there, there really is no war on cars, technically, beyond our podcast. But why would you be at war on cars? A um, lot of reasons. Uh, cars are just a really inappropriate uh, transportation technology for cities. Uh, cars and cities do not mix. And we have, unfortunately, in North America... Um, made our cities. Uh, 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 unfortunately, in North America, we've we've essentially um, made it almost impossible to get around any other way, other than having a car. And when you go to our biggest cities, particularly cities with like decent transit, and cities where with places where people could potentially be walking and biking and getting around by other modes, we've made it dangerous and inconvenient and kind of unpleasant and gross to get around because we have essentially jam packed our public spaces, our streets with motor vehicles. You you live in New York. How do you get around? Well, um, I get around by every mode. You know, I bike a lot, take the subway a lot, take the bus every once in a while, uh, walk all the time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I, you know, use a car too. So for people, and you say you bike a lot, so just focusing on that for the moment, what's up with that? What's, who's interfering with your ability to cycle around New York City? Well, um, I have, I have a pretty specific take on that. And I think the, the, um, the people who are interfering the most with our ability to bike safely in the city are the people who are parking their cars on the curbside, on the street for free, on virtually every street in the city. And I say that because um, we could have an incredible network of protected bike lanes in this mm-hmm. city and in many cities, um, bike lanes that would enable 
like an eight-year-old kid and an 80-year-old grandma to bike safely, to do most of their daily chores um, by bicycle if we had protected bike lanes. And the thing that seems to be most in the way of getting a proper bike network built in New York and lots of other cities is the fact that we have just sort of given over our streets for people's uh, personal car storage as a mm-hmm. place for people. The street is essentially a gigantic parking lot. And it's kind of a mind boggling thing. If you think about it, that, you know, in a big crowded city where space, I mean, a tiny studio apartment in New York city can cost as much as like $4,500 a month. And yet you like right in front of that apartment, you can have a street space with a gigantic SUV that is parked for free um, in the same amount of space that this $4,500 a month apartment, you know, takes up. So we have this bizarre um, thing where we, we give away the street for free for, for, uh, for, for car storage. And that, I, and I think that is the, that's the thing that is most in the way of, of biking actually. But what you're saying is just essentially you're going to get the city to either through parking charges or whatever to jack up taxes on people. If people are paying $4,500 a month in rent, surely they need a break, a bit of a break, uh, and uh, uh, letting them have a parking space could be that. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, first of all, there's a lot of different tools that you could use to start to make this change happen, Um, not just, you know, and actually, I mean, I do think that parking your car on the street should cost money. Um, but, and it mostly doesn't now, but, um, you know, one of the reasons why it's so expensive to live in New York and other cities is because, um, we use this, our space, our public space. So poorly, um, we, you know, space where you see parking lots or even, you know, cars parked on the street could theoretically be, used for housing, housing mm-hmm. actual human beings. Every time there is a big real estate development project in Brooklyn, New York, where I live, mm-hmm. a bunch of people show up at a community meeting and say, you can't build more housing here. Uh, you're going to create more traffic congestion because the assumption is every single new person is going to create, uh, you know, is going to need a place to park and is going to be driving more in more cars. And, The fact that we can't build more housing because people are worried about traffic means that housing is more expensive. Mm-hmm. So we've created like it's a, it's it's an economically insane way to organize the city to just sort of give space away for free to cars when the cars themselves will end up um, making things uh, more expensive and less convenient. For everyone, including the car drivers themselves. By the pause, way. pause with that for a moment, because I just want you to listen to a very quick clip. This is from a PragerU YouTube video. Oh, uh, PragerU, PragerU is a uh, right-wing uh, YouTube um, channel, but they have very highly produced videos, and they're financed by uh, oil billionaires. But just let's listen to the very quick clip. Cars are more than just another way to get from point A to point B. They allow us to go wherever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. Think about it. With trains, planes, and buses, the routes are planned, and the schedule is timed. Only cars allow you to be spontaneous. When you get behind the wheel, you are in control. You are free. 
I can I can hear you rolling your eyes from here, Aaron. Um, but there's an essential point there that whether you agree with it or not, I think most Americans have internalized that driving a car, getting your first driving license, that's a moment of freedom, isn't it? Well, I certainly felt that way. You know, at the time when I got my driver's license, I lived in um, a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And there was no, there were really no other ways for me to get around um, at that time because we spent uh, most of the 20th century building a, uh, you know, habitat in North America, building, you know, a pattern of settlement that was entirely oriented around the automobile. So, yes, this is true that in most places uh, around North America, you really do need car and there aren't very many options um you know and i think the i'm imagining that the woman who you know narrated or the people who produced that prager you video they probably don't live in new york city because Mm -hmm. you know it's very obvious when you're in a big city today um boston new york dc seattle los angeles you know go down the list houston um the thing that's preventing you from having freedom of movement and real mobility is everyone's car. (laughs) You know, you are sitting in lots of traffic. You are stuck on these like hellish suburban arterials. This, this is the, this is really the, the, the tragedy of the commons, isn't it? Everybody's individual car is their freedom, but everybody else's car is blocking that freedom and everybody's car, everybody who is attempting to use their car to arrive at freedom is blocking that for everybody else. I can see what you're saying there, but it's the case really, isn't it, that there doesn't seem to be an easy way around that? Well, that, actually, that's not true. I, there, there, there are easy ways around that, and we have plenty of examples of cities that are, that are doing otherwise than, you know, forcing everybody to own and insure and fuel and maintain a car to get around a city. Um, you go to places in Asia, you go to places in Europe, South America, there are plenty of places that have... Um, built great transit systems, have made it possible to do short trips on bikes, have made the walking environment totally great and pleasant and convenient and safe. Um, so, you know, this is not rocket science. I mean, and this is frankly how we built um, cities, towns and villages for thousands of years before the car. Mm-hmm. You know, the car is a pretty new invention. And the notion of a city filled with cars is just an invention of the last uh 60, 70, 80 years, um, since really since World War II. So, you know, we can do this, um, it, but it, it does require, you know, it, it, it's a political problem more than a technical problem. Um, it, it really involves convincing people that, hey, we would all be better off in the city um, if we collectively decided, you know what, we're going to start to, um, we're going to start to push the car Sure. Yeah, but that's 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 a precise description of the tragedy of the commons that everybody would be better off if everybody did that. But each individual is better off if they don't. No, but that's not true. That's just not not true. I mean, I mean, look at the just look at the drivers. Like, tell me that that person feels they're better off when they're just like sitting in traffic, just looking pissed off. Um, honking their horn, breathing exhaust fumes, not getting where they're going. This is daily in our. Oh, hold on, you you did I, you did an episode on your podcast of this of contrasting what car ads look like with the reality of them. Maybe go through that for us. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, the classic 
Right. The, the classic car ad is selling you, you know, exactly the opposite of the experience of driving in a city. So, you, you know, you see a car speeding around, you know, an urban environment with no other cars around it. You know, you're going like 60 miles an hour down the street. And then lo and behold, you're like at the top of a mountain um, or you're, you know, fjording uh, you're, or you're uh, you're fording a river, um, in, you know, in your SUV. I mean, these are things that you're never going to actually experience you know, in your car when you're picking up your kid from soccer practice and you're 15 minutes late because, you know, I don't know, somebody was double parked, um, you know, at a, at a busy intersection. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the thing is like the, 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 the motor vehicle, the automakers, you know, they know they're, they have to sell you a fantasy because the reality of an automobile based transportation system in cities is terrible. It's a terrible user experience for everybody. And I, and I think most of all for the drivers, I mean, that's why I got, I owned a car. I got rid of it because it was just a terrible, humongous albatross you know around my neck at all times um and i'm so much happier not owning it which is not to say that i never drive i've, I've become like a big fan of something that we have in new york and a bunch of other cities now called car to go mm-hmm. which is just a car share so when i do need a car i can just walk up to a car click a button on an app on my phone and boom i have a car for 41 cents a minute and i really think that something like that you know is probably the future of cars and cities you know so where, whereas I don't have to pay for the gas or the insurance or the maintenance. I don't have to really bother too much about parking it and moving it on, you know, street cleaning days when I'll get a ticket if I leave it at the curb. Um, the, the car is owned by a fleet, uh, by a big company. So they could even like start to do things like make sure that like their drivers are driving safely and not. It's like, hey, buddy, you know, hi, Aaron, I've noticed you're you know exceeding the speed limit a lot in your car to go. Could you please, you know and be a little more careful. They don't do that now, but the, I'm just saying in theory, like they could do that. We could have a much better system if people didn't, didn't, we could still have cars, but if people didn't have to own and operate a car for themselves, mm-hmm. it would just work much better for cities. Sorry if I'm babbling. Please keep babbling. That's what we have on this show. Um, but okay. what, what I want to get more into is the way in which I think you on your podcast are unafraid to attack the culture that's around cars. And people tend to, I think, uh, when they campaign on this issue, they tend to try not to offend people like that Prager video and say, no, we don't want to take away your freedom to drive everywhere. But one thing that it strikes me is that if you have a lot of cars, I've been to cities that have very few and there are cities with no cars at all just because of the way they were built maybe a thousand years ago or more most cities in 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 america were built much more recently but they are much more dense which means that people are just closer to everything everything you want is closer to you because you don't have to devote a huge amount of land to parking and to wide streets that people can drive through and particularly from your point of view, it might be a pessimistic take, but every time you build another freeway, you're putting that amount of space between people and where they want to get to, which means you'll need another freeway. I'm not sure that there's a way out of that uh, downward spiral. Right. It's really tricky to know what to do with um, with suburban sprawl and all of the sprawl that we've built around North America. Mm-hmm. Um there are certainly places that are suburban that are not in the centers of big cities that we could start to retrofit. 
um, and create more density um, in places like, you know, old malls um, out in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, place, you know, malls are dying all over the country. Um, they're, they're really not. Um, I mean, there, it's a, it's, it's a really terrible business now, the whole mall business. And those are, but those are places that are ripe for becoming kind of like, uh, dense urban cores. And that's starting to happen in, in a few places. Um, there are other places that are just so far flung that I think they will become, you know, financially difficult to support in the coming years. Um, you know, that's a, a big problem with sprawl is that, you know, when we spread ourselves out across the landscape, um, we also spread out all of the services we need to live, you know, so electricity and sewer lines and water pipes and fire departments. And, you know, you need to sort of have all of this infrastructure spread across this vast distance. And um, I, I actually think that it's the financial unsustainability of that that's going to ultimately doom a lot of it but then some of it's also just going to probably be doomed by changing climate and you know places that we've built in the sun belt that um you know are sucking water out of like the colorado river you know hundreds of miles away or whatever um those places are also probably going to become unsustainable it would be nice if we could, you know, instead of just having like a chaotic retreat from these unsustainable places, if we could, if we could, you know, do some smart planning and get people to move away from them. Mm-hmm. But that's going to be, that's going to be a big fight. That's going to be hard. Do you, do you think maybe that you might have, you might have been born on the wrong continent that if you were advocating this in some Northern European uh, country, they would be halfway there already. Uh, but in the US, even the cities where it is most plausible, New York or San Francisco, perhaps, it is uh, not a popular opinion that you're promoting. And in most other cities in the US, it's it's uh, off the deep end. There's there's no audience for that at all. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, you know, it, I love, you know, visiting Amsterdam and Copenhagen and going to places that have, you know, done transportation really well. But no, I don't think I'm in the wrong place. In fact, um, this stuff actually is very popular um, in New York and other big cities. Uh, it doesn't feel that way sometimes because, um, you know, drivers and cars take up a lot of space. So they they feel bigger and more omnipresent than they really are. But the fact is that, you know, uh, a substantial majority of New York City residents do not own a car, even though the vast majority of our public space is given to cars. So we're giving this incredible asset that we have as a city, our streets, our public spaces, a way to uh, a minority of people who use it. Might I point out? Might I point out a relatively powerful minority? Well, but it's funny. Their power is like from a kind of in a in a kind of status quo way. It's just their power derives from the fact that like this is how it is. But we've seen amazing amounts of change take place in just the last 10 or 15 years um, where streets in New York city um, and lots of other North American cities are really starting to um, be reconfigured uh, away from the car. So for example, you know, a place that lots of people would know about times square in the middle of Manhattan, you know, where Mm -hmm. you do the big new year's Eve celebration, 
you know, for about 40 years, they were talking about like in Times Square, it makes no sense that we have all this car traffic moving through it. It's gridlocked. It's terrible. Everybody's honking their horns and not moving anywhere. Why don't we make it car free? And that was a discussion for literally since the from starting in the 1960s. And it was just sort of, you know, nothing would happen. It just seemed too big, too complicated. And then finally, um, you know, this new wave of advocacy started in the mid 2000s. A lot of it, I think, was very much empowered by the Internet and the ease with which people could organize and share ideas. And pretty quickly, um, Times Square went through this kind of iterative process and became mostly car free. And that was just one example. There were lots of small examples and lots of streets that started to get new bike lanes and dedicated bus lanes. And I mean, cities are really moving in this direction now. You call it a war. Are you winning or losing? I mean, on a personal level, I walk outside of my house every day and I'm just like, damn, we are losing the war on cars. You know, I mean, just this morning, there was like you know, a double parked truck in front of my house on the street in Brooklyn and you know, a bunch of people on either side of this guy just honking their horns and, you know, pissed off and not going anywhere. So, you know, I think, you know, on a lot of days I wake up and I think we're losing. I visit a place in Ohio, like where my sister lives, and I think, oh, my God, this this place is never going to have functional transit. But then other times I look at I look at the progress that's happening and there's a lot of it. And I think we're winning. So so I can go either way. It depends when you catch me. Um, I mentioned they're uh, powerful people, and I don't often quote Marx, but he did say some interesting things once in a while. And one thing Marx said, uh, that's Karl Marx, by the way, people, mm-hmm, not Groucho, mm-hmm. sure. uh, said that the dominant ideas in society are the ideas of the dominant people in society. And you mentioned that a minority, that only a minority of New Yorkers have cars but they dominate. And that's a mm-hmm. real challenge for you, for somebody, you know, who who is wanting to change the way that transport works. However well you can advocate what you would like it to be and however well you can point out that it might be a way more livable city, much more pleasant and safer place to be. Even if you have a majority, you don't have a majority of the dominant people. Isn't that true? Well, I mean... I don't know about that, really. You know, we have this um, uh, New York City is governed by a mayor and we have a city council and the city council tends to be I mean, right now is a it's mostly a pretty young group of people mm-hmm. really like progressive and activist. Um, it just happens to be the character of the city council. And the speaker, the leader of the city council, just stood up and gave his first state of the city speech. 37-year-old guy, technically the first millennial to be a, uh, you know, millennial generation guy to be uh, in a citywide office in New York. Mm-hmm. And he delivered a speech that was basically just like the, you know, the war on cars manifesto. Um, this is a guy who could be the mayor of New York City in three years, um, very easily, you know, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there is a younger generation that is emerging and they're coming into power now and they don't want the city to be like this and they're going to change it. Um, We, you know, we live in the city of our parents and grandparents. I mean, it takes time to change a city and our parents and grandparents, you know, they thought that the automobile was um, not just the solution to a lot of problems, but was a kind of like, you know, a symbol of freedom and a 
cultural icon and you know like a thing like a thing that was gonna yeah it's not just your grandparents who thought that most americans think that now and uh, aren't they perhaps right in thinking that you are wanting to symbolize taking away freedom well i mean sure they they might think that and maybe we need to figure out how to communicate these ideas better but but the fact is like we just want to you know in in the realm of transportation we just want to move our persons and our goods from one place to the other right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the notion that like you know a car equals freedom is totally irrelevant like what would be freedom for a person in a city is if a bus came down their local avenue you know every 5 minutes and it was inexpensive and convenient and on time and had its own dedicated lane and you could just literally like, okay, I don't feel like walking. I'm just going to hop on this bus and this people mover is going to take me to the place I need to go. That would be freedom too. Um, but, you know, I think that's not how we have conceived freedom uh, in, in America. Um, so it is a new idea and, you know, new ideas take time. But, um, you know, I think it's like self-evident that the car is not freedom. It's like so expensive to, you know, maintain and fuel up. Um, to insure, to repair, um, to buy in the first place. It sits stuck in traffic. It kills people at alarming numbers, like 40,000 people a year are killed by cars in the United States. Um, it is, you know, literally destroying the planet with fossil fuel emissions uh, and our ability to live in civilization. I mean, there, it's so self-evident that the car is not freedom, and that is why automakers spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars convincing us that the car is freedom. So, you know, this is what we're – it's a big machine, what we're up against. But I think people get it. You know, I think people feel it and know it. And, you know, at some point, it'll, it's gonna, the dam's going to break. Aaron Napersek, uh, co-host of The War on Cars, thank you very much for talking to me. <laughs> okay, thank you. Never miss a show. You can subscribe to the podcast for free using iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast software or app. See challengingopinions.com backslash subscribe for details. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Aaron Napperstech at Napperstech, and follow The War on Cars at The War on Cars. And get in touch with me if you think you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Also, thanks to everyone who's signed up as patrons on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means I can devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. And if you could do the same as they've done and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's May 27th, I'll be talking to the writer Grayson Kay about the mixed effects of the Me Too movement. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. <laughs>